Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. We're in a series in 1 Thessalonians and we're right in the middle of it. We've taken a couple of weeks break over the last uh, two weeks. And so I'm going to give you a quick recap um, of the first three chapters and the first little bit um, of chapter four and where we're up to. So Paul uh, has written this letter to the church in Thessalonica, and it's written from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Um, so they're uh, traveling companions, and they spent time in Thessalonica, and they've moved on. Um, and the first three chapters of this letter are essentially encouragement, exhortation. It's Paul pouring out. Um, his love, his affection, his admiration for them and how they've stood firm under such persecution. Paul, um, Silvanus and Timothy were only with them for about three weeks or so, probably maybe a little bit longer. But people uh, started to put their trust in Jesus. And as they did so, as they started to gather together as believers, opposition arose and persecution um, sprung up. And so these guys make a fairly quick exit um, after literally a few weeks. And what they leave behind is a church of uh, relatively new believers, people coming into faith, people learning um, what it is to follow Jesus and how to do that. And whilst these guys continue traveling, they are so concerned for them that when they get to Athens, they send Timothy back. And so Timothy heads back to Thessalonica to encourage them to, to, to hear how they're doing. And then he brings a report back to Paul, uh, Silvanus and Timothy. And then this letter of 1 Thessalonians is written off the back of that. And so at the end of chapter 3, Paul's just unpacked Timothy's report um, for them. And then we dive in, we've, we, dive, do, do, mm, uh, we dived into... Um, chapter 4, two weeks ago, uh, when we looked at the first eight verses. And it's really the first point in this letter that Paul begins to give, if you like, some specific instruction. Up until now, it's essentially been Paul sharing his heart for them, his love, his concern, his, his admiration for them and how they've stood firm in the face of such opposition. And A few weeks ago, we looked at the first eight verses of chapter four, where we looked at sexual immorality um, and all that that is. And today, we're going to dive in um, at verse nine. And so we're going to jump in uh, with 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter four, verse nine. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. 
And so right at the beginning of this uh, passage, you can see just the affection that he has for them coming through in verse 9 then. Because we spent so much time looking at this relationship that he's got, we aren't going to spend loads of time on the first couple of verses. I really want us to start to unpack verses uh, 11 and 12. Um, But just to say that in verse 10, um, he ends with this phrase, do this more and more. And he says in verse 9 that you're great at loving one another. In fact, you, you, you have so much love for one another that it spills out to the whole of Macedonia, to the whole region. You have such care, love um, for the wider body of Christ. And uh, we want you to express this love more and more. And he's encouraging them to do this. This more and more actually echoes uh, one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 where he uses that same word in pretty much exactly the same context, where in verse 1, Paul says, walk and please God just as you're doing and do so more and more. You see, Paul uses this phrase and then he springs into instruction off the back of it. And so he's, he's encouraging them to step into more fruitfulness, more of God's grace um, to them, and in verse one, um, he used this verse and then sprang into teaching or instruction about sexual immorality. And then again, he does so here very effectively, and then he leaps into um, essentially warning against idleness. But hang on, I hear you say. He hasn't even mentioned idleness in our passage today. He said three things. If you were paying attention, it's probably is it? Oh, there it is. He said three things. None of them were actually. Idleness. What did he say? He said, live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. And you see, Paul is picking up on something here, and he even refers back to something or a moment or an instance where he says, as we instructed you. Uh, He says, as we instructed you, uh, in verse 11, towards the end of verse 11, to work with your hands as we instructed you. So he's he's given them, if you like, some foundations. He's set some foundations. He's instructed them previously. Um, And uh, he actually will then tell them, or if you like, remind them, or actually go over some of this teaching again when he then writes the second letter to the Thessalonians. It seems to be a bit of a recurring theme with the Thessalonians. How many of you know what that's like? (laughs) Right? You hear something once and you forget it. You hear something a second time and you forget it again. You hear something a third time and if you're anything like me, you probably forget it again. Right? This is truth that needs to be keep being reminded um, to the Thessalonians. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 7 to 12, uh, I'm not sure. For, oh, yes, perfect. Lauren, legend. Come on, Lauren. Um, it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 and 12, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have uh, that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some, that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So he uses similar language, but in 2 Thessalonians, he gets super pers- super specific, right? 
It's kind of like um, if you are British, uh, our conversation, we often infer a lot of things without necessarily being that direct. And so we often like to talk around the houses without actually getting to the point. Now, I know if you're not British, that frustrates you no end. Um, and I apologize on behalf of uh, my culture. Um, but the reality is that's essentially what Paul's, Paul, Paul, Paul's, Paul's taught them something. And then in 1 Thessalonians, he teaches them again. But it's a little bit more detail. He unpacks it a little bit more. In 2 Thessalonians, he goes into much more detail. He's like, no, it's idleness. <laughs> he's like, you, 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 you just, you, you're getting consumed with other things and you're letting other things take priority. You need to wake up, mature, grow in God, um, and take responsibility. That's essentially what he's saying um, in 2 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, he talks about live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, work quietly, don't be a busybody, and work and earn your own living. So hopefully you can see these parallel themes that are coming through um, in these two passages, where in 2 Thessalonians, he's much more explicit. And this uh, seems to be something of a phenomenon that's happening in, in Thessalonica. And there's, there's a certain logic to it, even though Paul is trying to bring some correction. And, and essentially the logic goes something like this. that they've, the Paul, Silvanus and uh, Timothy have been in Thessalonica and they've seen people come to Christ. And so the Thessalonians, are lo- their, their logic is, well, we've received Christ... We've put our trust in him. Persecution and opposition has arisen within our city. As a result of that, there are probably people that have lost their jobs. There are people that have been outcast. People may even have quit if their jobs were immoral or they weren't able to carry on. Um, and And within that, because Jesus is the priority, that stuff doesn't matter. And so actually now, because we wait in anticipation for Jesus' return, what's the point of getting a job? He's coming back. So if he's coming back, why consume ourselves with these things? Why give our time and our attention to these things if he's coming back? That's essentially the logic. But Paul says that actually the result of that in 2 Thessalonians is that they become a burden. You become a burden on the other believers. And in 1 Thessalonians, he says, um, it leads to dependence. You become dependent on those that are still earning and having to meet those needs who are just, of those that are just being idle, of those that are not giving their time and attention um, to that. And then you can see why it fits in this context of brotherly love, why Paul uh, writes at the beginning of our Uh, passage in verse 9, he says, now concerning brotherly love, he's saying in these verses, Paul's saying, you you, you show brotherly love, but when you are idle and you expect others to step in and meet the shortfall, that's not love. That's immaturity. So we're going to look briefly um, at each of these things that Paul expands, and we're going to unpack them Together. So the first one then, so aspire to live quietly. He says that, doesn't he? He says, um, and we urge you brothers uh, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly. Now, um, we have this phrase, um, the quiet life. Have you ever come across that phrase? 
um, and it describes a lifestyle or it describes, um, if you like, an attitude that might promote a sense of ease or um, a sense of just not being bothered with too many things and it's just kind of this nice quiet life where you can just get on with what you want to get on with, don't worry about anything else um, and you can kind of uh, just kind of live happily ever after with minimal disruption um, and minimal disturbance, you can just get on with things. But that's not necessarily what Paul is talking about here. If we, if we go that way, um, I think we end up reading our culture into their culture. But actually I think when Paul talks about um, live quietly. He's not necessarily talking about like the idyllic peace and quiet, the rural dream, right? He's not talking about that, right? Actually, what he's talking about um, is a, is a deep sense of inner peace. Now, um, this this the word that is used for living quietly. Um, actually, one of the one of the definitions that really helped me is this idea: is it can also be translated to hold one's peace. So living quietly is to live peacefully. And so um, in the midst of all of the chaos, because if we look at the church in uh, Thessalonica, what happened was it was anything but quiet. And, and, And Paul was there for just over three weeks, and they get all of this noise of persecution that starts to spring up. And Paul, Paul's not saying, well, just try and you know, navigate your way through it. Weave your way in and out. Use wisdom to discern when to say something, when to not say something. And to be honest, you'll find a lot of teaching around that. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything against wisdom. I'm just saying that's probably not necessarily the context that they were in. They, they were in the midst of a lot of noise. It was a busy city. The, the, the religious authority said that the, the, those men that have turned the world upside down have come here. You can read it in Acts 17. Said they come here, and they look to oust them, and that's why these guys have to flee. So they're not looking for an easy ride, but in the midst of it, they are looking to hold on to their peace. They are looking to hold on to the peace and not let it go. And when you live in a city like London, it, it can be hard to live peacefully because you're surrounded by just hectic lives. You're surrounded by lots of competing things that would draw your attention, that would um, clamour for uh, position. But you know, true peace doesn't come from just a delicate balance of priorities and relationships and finding the perfect mix and the right rhythms and the right structures. It doesn't come from that stuff. Perfect peace, true peace, Living peacefully, living quietly, actually comes from knowing the Prince of Peace. Now, the prophet Isaiah, who was a guy hundreds of years before Jesus even arrived on the scene, he prophesied um, that Jesus, um, the Messiah, would come. He would be the wonderful counselor, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. That was one of the names, one of the titles um, that he gave to this coming Messiah. And actually, Jesus, uh, when he walked on the earth in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 14 and 27, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, speaking to his followers, said this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's massive. That's massive when you're living in a city like London and you've just got a million thoughts running through your head. That's massive when you're in the midst of some quite tumultuous relationships and things are demanding your time and attention and you're getting pulled this way and that way and you don't quite know what to do, how to, how to articulate things, where to invest your time, where to invest your energy. And in the midst of all of that, 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 that chaos, to know that Jesus has given us his peace. That actually peace isn't necessarily the absence of those things, but peace comes in the midst of those things to ground us and root us in who he is. You see, that's essentially the gospel. That's essentially the good news of Jesus. That if you like, Jesus is, is, is that centerpiece on which everything else builds. Essentially, God created the world, and through our own turning away from him, through our own rebellion, we brought chaos into the world. And to be honest, you don't have to go very far to realize that our world is surrounded in chaos. And yet the promise that Jesus makes is that in the midst of that chaos, he brings his peace. The question then is, how does he do that? Well, we read that his followers, he gives them his peace. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we can draw on his peace. We can access that peace. But if you're not a believer here this morning, then as I described, it's like that tension where you're holding all of these different things together. And you're holding all of these different priorities and relationships together. But without a centerpiece, without a defining middle, without a foundation, you're essentially building a very fragile structure that will, at some point, collapse and crumble. But the peace that Jesus offers provides a foundation. And on him, as the prince of peace, we can build. And that means, that means every other relationship, every other situation, everything else that would clamor for attention or want to divert us can be centered on Jesus. And we can see through the lens of Jesus' peace what that means. And so in the midst of all the activity, that might mean that, might mean that we have to let go of some relationships and we entrust them to God. It might mean that we have to say no to certain things. It might mean that we have to look to prioritize Jesus and what he is doing over and above ourselves. I was, um, when, uh, when we first moved to London, we, uh, we moved after university, we moved up to London, we moved from um, Exeter, way down in the southwest, um, beautiful city if you've been there, um, but we moved up to London, um, and for the first year, we probably were back to Exeter for various different things. A lot of our friends stayed in Exeter, whether it was weddings, birthdays, like, just you name it, like, it was like, it was just exhausting, 
And there came a point where actually you, you, we sat down and we said, you know what, if we're building in London and this is what God has called us to and we're going to root ourselves here, then we've got to let go of some of those things. And actually, prioritizing Christ in the middle of it to be invested here and what God is doing here um, in and through us meant we had to say no to certain things. We're actually relationally we probably wanted to stay connected. We wanted to stay close. We wanted to, to, to keep some of those relationships because we were known and we knew them. But actually in doing so, what, what, what that often prevented was being able to form new relationships and being able to, 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 to step out into new things or prioritise other things that God was leading us into. And like I say, those relationships weren't bad. They were great relationships and I look forward to the day when I will spend eternity with some of them praising Jesus. But for now, we move on. We're called to different things. Um, and then uh, secondly, he mentions, um, mind your own affairs. He says, and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. I'm not going to spend long... Um, on this, but essentially, he, he, he gets really specific in 2 Thessalonians where he says, um, basically, you're a busybody. You just want to be in every other, bu- every other business. You want to be in up in everybody's grill. You want to know what's going on. You want to hear the latest gossip. You want to be around everything. You want to be in the room. You want to be influencing, shaping things. You want to be. That's the kind of person um, that he's talking about. And he says, mind your own affairs. And I think it boils down to this is where is the invitation? What are the relationships where you're invited in? Rather than having to assert yourself, or rather than having to give an opinion because you've got something to say, where, it, where is the space being given where you're invited in to conversations? Because you see, that changes the nature of things. As soon as you're given access and permission um, to speak in, actually it allows you to then bring yourself without having to jostle for position or without having to kind of assert yourself or, or, or come across so um, straightforward and determined in your mind. But actually, you can, you can come knowing that, that, that what God is doing in you can flow out of you into conversation, into relationship. See, that's why things like running partners are so critical. Running partners are essentially groups of three or four people that meet um, to do life together, to journey with one another, to invest in one another, to pray together, to study together, to read together. Here at at Rev, running partners are key because what it does is as you build relationship with people, you build trust. And where you build trust, you build access. And all of a sudden, in those relationships, people can speak into your situation. People can speak into your life in, in a way that isn't defensive or assertive. But actually, people can speak into your life and you know that they love you. And I've been in some running partners and boy, will they tell you the truth. And it's painful sometimes. But for the investment in one another... It's so vital and necessary that in those relationships we're forming open, honest accountability. 
without the fear of things being uh, taken wider, without the fear of things being banded around, but actually through that trust and relationship that actually we know we are loved and we are secure. And actually as we form those relationships, that actually it provides tremendous access and invitation for people to speak in. And then uh, finally in verse uh, 11, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed. As I mentioned previously in Thessalonica, something of an unhelpful narrative um, had had kind of begun to be developed around the idea of work as being less spiritual, if you like. And so where people uh, probably found themselves out of work it was, it was almost a less spiritual endeavour anyway. And so actually what you found was people were then throwing themselves um, into um, Christian ministry. They were throwing themselves into all sorts of things um, in anticipation for Christ's return. But they were doing it at the detriment of other brothers and sisters. And those people weren't necessarily looking to get back into work. And there's probably a couple of reasons for that. One, work is hard. Pretty obvious, but yeah, work is hard. (laughs) Um, We'll talk about why in a second. Um, And secondly, that idea that I spoke about, that if Jesus is coming back, what's the point? Jesus said, uh, the angels came and said, in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven, he will return. And so I imagine this Thessalonian standing around, like, just waiting, (laughs) just waiting, and waiting and waiting, and actually, um, it becomes it becomes problematic. And so, um, at its root, this idea that work is somehow less spiritual actually is not just a problem for the Thessalonians. Actually, I think it's a massive problem for us as well in our culture. I think um, I think amongst um, I think amongst my generation and younger, I think what we're seeing is people finding, um, and not always healthily, I might add, I think we're seeing a greater sense of people finding their purpose and identity in work, which I don't think is always healthy, because I don't think necessarily Jesus is always the foundation of their peace. Whereas I think actually when I speak to my parents' generation, work was hard, but it was something to invest in and you stuck it out and you grit your teeth and you got through it. And that's, that's admirable. What it also removes though is the sense of vocation, the sense of calling that Jesus, that this is what Jesus has made you for. This is the calling that Jesus has placed on your life. And you see, if you move outside of the security of Jesus' peace, then, then, then it either, you either become subject to that thing where you throw yourself in completely unabandoned and then you get all mixed up with all sorts of priorities or you live in this sense of just grinding it out day after day in a job that you really don't like, but you've got to because you've got to provide for the family and you're just going to stick it out and doesn't matter how hard it is, going to dig your heels in, Right? 
I want to propose that there is a middle ground. I want to propose that there is a middle ground where Jesus is the foundation of our peace. And out of that place, we begin to work and we begin to live and we begin to serve and we begin to um, reflect the characteristics of God in our workplaces. Because you see, if you think that work is somehow less spiritual, what it leads you to is almost just checking out. I'm just clocking in the hours, get paid at the end of the month so that I can live, pay my rent, whatever, and then move on. But actually, you're completely detached. You might be there physically, but you're detached emotionally, spiritually, um, and in every other way. And now, I'm going to do something a little bit brave, um, because there will be people in this room that know God has laid on your heart a vocation. You know that God has put a calling on your life into a specific industry or workplace, and that is God-given. And I was tempted to get somebody else to say this from the front, somebody that is in the workplace five days a week, nine to five. Um, I, come July this year, um, I was released full-time for the church, which is a massive privilege, and I recognise the privilege that it is. And the reason I didn't get somebody else to come and say this is because I think as one of your elders, you need to know that your workplace is a priority. It's not the priority. It's one of the priorities. It's where you can be effective for the kingdom of God. It's where God has placed you to embody the characteristics of love, patience, kindness, godliness, Fruit of the Spirit. That's what he's called you to. And so I recognize the tension that we often feel that we want to give more time to church and I want to give more time to church and I want you to give more time to church. But at the same time, I also recognize that God had gifted and graced some of you for particular vocations and workplaces that actually will shape and influence things beyond Revelation Church. And that is a good and God-glorifying thing. And I want you to hear that. But you see, work in the Bible is a massive topic. It's enormous. In fact, um, it's so big that it goes right back to creation. Right? That's where it goes back to. Um, And um, Paul is commending them um, to work hard. He's commending them to work with integrity. um, And and he's, he's, he's in... He's exhorting them to invest um, in the places where they find employment. Um, And it goes right back to Genesis chapter 2 in creation, when God took Adam and he placed him in the garden. And he, he placed him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And so work has been instituted by God. Right, right, right before, right, right at the point of creation. And yet, what we see in the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 3, is actually the issue isn't with work at all. The issue isn't with God either. The issue is with us. Because you see, in Genesis chapter 3, what happens is Adam and Eve disobey God. He places them in the garden to work and to keep it. And then he says, you can eat anything but this one tree. If, if, If you eat the fruit of this one tree, then... You're going to die. And 
Adam and Eve disobey him. They eat of that tree um, and they do eventually die. It sets in pattern and motion, it sets in motion um, their bodies begin to decay. They're cast out of the Garden of Eden. And actually in Genesis chapter 3, part of the consequences of that disobedience is that God says work's now going to be hard. And not that we should necessarily try and avoid it because it's hard, but that actually we then need to dig deep into God's grace and his peace to work in a way that then honours God and blesses him. Now, I know there will be some of us in the room um, who perhaps aren't working, um, and there's many reasons for that, um, but that's not necessarily what Paul's getting at here. It may be that there's um, medical reasons, it may be that there's just people in between things at the moment, and you decide to take a break, get some perspective. Um, it may be that um, perhaps you're, you're here and you aren't able to work. Your uh, visa situation, your status won't allow you to work. Um, th- those things aren't the things that Paul's talking about here. And the things that Paul's talking about here are those people that are deliberately choosing not to work that are then becoming dependent on um, others. And in doing so, aren't loving their brothers and sisters. Now, what Paul is not saying here is necessarily that, that, that in order to, um, to do that, you're necessarily, um, it's, not, it's not about generosity, right? It's not about people gathering together and feeling a sense of call and feeling stirred to then give. Paul's talking about it from the other side, that actually there is an expectation within the relationship that all of a sudden is expecting something because of your situation and circumstances. That's not generosity at all. Generosity is the other way around. Generosity is where God stirs your heart and stirs your heart to give and to give in a way that is sacrificial, to give in a way that blesses, to give in a way that sometimes meets the needs and sometimes just blesses people. That's generosity. And Paul is a huge advocate of generosity. But this kind of dependency, this financial dependency, that's what Paul's talking about. Here, Um, it says in Colossians 3, verse 23, regardless of our work situation, regardless of whether we feel like we're clocking in and clocking out, regardless of whether it feels mundane or regardless of whether it feels difficult, regardless um, regardless of whether it feels really fun and maybe you're in an awesome workplace and you love it. It says this in Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And when we understand this verse, all of a sudden it changes our perspective because in, in, in a metaphorical kind of way, God becomes our employer. God is the one who provides for us. God is the one who opens doors and it provides for us this incredible sense of calling and vocation that I was talking about. That actually when we recognise God places us in situations and circumstances, and that it's something we're called to, not just something we suffer through, right? Then actually we can do so from a place of wanting to honour God. So ultimately, yes, we want to bless our bosses. Yes, we want to be good employees. But ultimately, we work for God. And so we work with diligence. We work with integrity, honesty, joy, that even in those instances, we may be remunerated. 
we might get paid, that we might be able to bless others. Not out of expectation, but out of generosity, you see? In uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, verse 13 says this, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil or work. This is God's gift to man. I love that bit at the end, <laughs> right? Because you go, everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil or work. Yeah, I can enjoy my job. It's not about enjoyment. This is God's gift to man. Your workplace, your colleagues, your environment that you're in, the talents that you have that you bring to bear wherever you are, this is God's gift to you. Before we end, um, just quickly then. So all of this living quietly um, or peacefully, minding our own affairs and working with your hands. um, Here, Paul says it's for two reasons. In verse 12, he says, So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now we've spoken a little bit about that second one, about being dependent on no one. But the other reason that Paul gives is that we may walk properly before outsiders. That by walking properly, we might set an example for them. That by walking properly, we might show them what the redemptive work of Jesus looks like in our conduct. And that by walking properly, we might be able to share the good news of Jesus with colleagues and friends and allow them to see uh, the incredible peace that he has provided for us. And so what I'd love us to do is just, why don't you stand to your feet? And I'd love, us just to, um, I'd love us just to pray quickly for our workplaces. But maybe you're here, and if you're not a believer, um, I, just felt, I felt prompted um, a little bit as I was talking about um, that sense of, of, of peace, having to manage responsibilities and relationships. And it feels like being pulled in a million different directions. And I feel a sense of God just wants to bring his peace right into the front and center. Um, That as we prioritize him and as we uh, trust in his grace and his peace to us, that actually everything else can be brought in line with that, that that. That we can juggle then responsibilities and we then have grace to handle some of those relationships. Um, and so um, maybe, maybe, maybe you don't know Jesus. And maybe this is, maybe as I was talking, you were kind of, yeah, that's exactly it. Um, this is an opportunity to come and say, Jesus, would you reveal your peace to me? God, would you reveal what receiving your peace looks like. And that might lead you to a place where you put your trust in Jesus, maybe even for the first time. But we're just going to take a moment, and just across the room, um, wherever you spend your nine to five, wherever you spend um, your week, I want us just, just across the room just to lift up prayers, murmurs of prayers, that, that, that God would come and impact our workplaces for his glory, for his kingdom that we might walk properly before outsiders. So let's just lift our voices now and do that.